this morning by Irene, and uh, we're going to read the whole chapter, so chapter 23, beginning at verse 1. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kayla and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Kayla. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Kayla against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Kayla, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Kayla and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kayla. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Kela. He had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Kela, And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Kela to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then said David, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Kela to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Kela surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Kela surrender me and my men into the hands of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Kela, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul, said, when Saul was told that David had escaped from Kela, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David knew that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish on the hill of Hachilah, where is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire, to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him unto the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have come, for you have compassion on me. Go make yet more sure, know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information, then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. Now they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jishimon. 
And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. When Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord, that is spoken, that is revealed to us. And Lord, I ask that uh, during our time this morning that you would have freedom to work in our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would have his way to accomplish his purposes, Lord, during this time of, of preaching. And would, would we be, Lord, receptive? Would we be humble? Would we be teachable? And Lord, would you allow me to, to be that, that channel, that vehicle, that mouthpiece, Lord, through which you desire to work? But Lord, we wanna see ultimately you, and we wanna be in, in adoration, Lord, of who you are, and in awe, Lord, of your ways. And so Lord, help us um, as we contemplate uh, what you have for us this morning, we ask in your name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. <clears throat> Perhaps you have paced up and down uh, the corridors of a hospital, um, worried about your wife and daughter as your wife is giving birth, wondering what was gonna happen, wondering whether they would both come through that moment that is something that I experienced with my daughter Deanna years ago, 33 weeks, wondering what was happening. It was kind of a, an emergency thing that happened. We, I wasn't sure what was gonna happen with my wife and the doctors weren't sure exactly what was going on. And I know there's been a lot of things like that happening in our church with our, our families and our children and, and those are times of crisis. Those are times of concern. Those are times of distress that many people go through. Perhaps. You've had to resign from a job out of a principle, wondering how God would provide for your family knowing that you really had very little to live on. Maybe that's an experience you've gone through. Maybe you've been told that you have a disease that will start to take you through hours and weeks and months and possibly years of treatment before you're cured. Or maybe there isn't any cure. Maybe you just have to kind of just you know, seek God's favor to see how long you will continue to be on this earth. But the news of that disease, the news of that struggle begins to now affect you and shape how you're viewing life. Maybe you've been shattered by a spouse who has had enough and is leaving you and the children for greener pastures, for a life that's free of the bondage that that person may have found within their marriage. See, these are all just samples of the kinds of trials that many of God's children do go through. Now, how will we cope with these things? How will we get through and endure during these trials? And our text this morning is going to help us with answering that question. But we need to begin by reading a psalm written by David that speaks into much of our text this morning, and it's Psalm 54. 
And you notice it says there at the beginning of Psalm 54, this is the title, these are part of the inspired sections of scripture. They're not added in afterwards, okay? To the choir master with string instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? So we, we have that right here in this text, and we have this awareness then of, of God who is going to be speaking to us through the pen of David about the circumstances that he was going through. So in reading the psalm to begin, it will help kind of fashion and shape how we're going to approach um, uh, coming to this passage of Scripture, beginning at verse 1. Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from my trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Now what's common for David in the Psalms is to begin with the distress, to begin with the trouble. And you find him kind of working his way through the psalm to the place where he gets at the end there, for he has delivered me from every trouble. There is a sense of he has to wrestle his way to the character of God, and then we find the results of the character of God on display at the end of the psalm. And we have that, in a sense, here. But I want to draw your attention to three particular statements. He says in verse 4, God is my helper, right? He's my helper. Notice after that he says, the Lord is the upholder of my life. And of course at the end in verse seven, he has delivered me from every trouble. So here, David is being honest about the context that he's in. But he's also reminded about who God is and how he works and what his ultimate goal is. And so this morning as we think about our text, I've put it this way. that that God is going to reveal for us some resources when we are having to face our enemies, when they're against us, when they're causing trouble for us, when they're seeking to take our lives. What resources does God give us when our enemies are doing that? And we're gonna discover three particular resources this morning that will help us in our distress. And we've all been there, haven't we? And we will likely all be there still. And these are helpful resources that God has revealed to us in this chapter to give us hope, to give us strength, to keep our focus where it needs to be. And one of the things I love about the Psalms and one of the things I love about this particular, I wanna say, part or section of scripture is that there's a rawness to David, isn't there? When you open up the Psalms, you actually see the struggles that are going on in his heart, which you may not see just in reading the storyline. And God is aware of man's frailty. He's aware even of David, his anointed one, and the struggles that he goes through. And if that is true, then certainly he is aware of our struggles, even though we have said, 
You are our Father. You are our Savior. You are our God. We still are people who fear. We're still people that get discouraged. We're still people that wonder what is going on in this world. And so these resources will help us to stay the course. So resource number one, I put it this way. It is the hand of God's guidance that helps us. In this first little section, verses one through 13, we're gonna see this theme of guidance unfold for us. Let me just quickly tell the story. And the story basically goes like this. David hears about the problems that are happening in uh, Kela, and the Philistines were attacking. They were stealing or robbing the threshing floors. In other words, they were stealing the, the foundation of their economy. Uh, think of it this way. Think of a, of, a, of a country invading the Bay Area and taking control of Google and Facebook and Cisco. You might say that would be a good thing. I don't know. Although it is kind of its own little country down there, right? But it would be like just taking over the economy. And so here is the city who is this distraught because the Philistines have come. And David, having heard that, seeks God's counsel and God directs him to go to their rescue. And so he turns to his men. He says, all right, we're going to go down to Kayla and we're going we're to help this city out. We're going to defeat the Philistines. And his men say, well, wait a second here. I mean, isn't it, isn't it rough enough being out here in the wilderness of Judah that we would expose ourselves by going down to Kayla and have to take on the Philistines? I mean, Saul is after you, David. Why would we go there and put ourselves in greater peril? Now, if they go down to Kayla, they're going to be exposed to both the Philistines and to Saul and his armies. But God confirms what he had already said to David by responding once again as David inquires of the Lord. God says, I will give the Philistines into your hand. That's what God said. That's what he promised. And so with that promise, with that assurance, David and his men go down to the city and they take on the Philistines. Notice what it says in verse five. And David and his men went to Kayla and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kayla. So David saves the city. That's the first thing. The next thing is Saul plotting for David. Saul finds out that David is in Kayla. And what is Saul thinking? He's not thinking, oh, great, the Philistines I can, I can go, you know, I can get some credit or I can chase them down. No, he's thinking, I've got David now, right? So somehow, through his Benjamite intelligence, he finds where, out where David is, and he's thinking to himself, this is a God-given opportunity to capture David. David, being in the city, is now imprisoned by gates and bars. And so he gathers this army to besiege the city to gain David and his, his men. Then let's read at verse six. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to the king of Kela, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was Saul uh, that, it was told Saul that David had come to Kela. And so there's this, there's this maneuvering now that's happening with Saul. But then as we continue to read on, David then is aware that Saul is plotting against him. He it says he knows that Saul is plotting against him. Again, probably due to his own intelligence about what's happening with Saul and his armies. But David has the ephod. And the ephod 
was the garment that was worn by the priest, in particular the high priest, and it was a, it was a, a mechanism to discern the will of the Lord. So we, when it says there that David inquired of the Lord, uh, what's going on here is he's able to do that specifically because he has the ephod. So, again, David inquires of the Lord, and God assures David that Saul is coming to destroy the city on account of David's presence, and that the men of Kela will surrender David to Saul. Isn't that wonderful? Here I am with my army coming to rescue you, and you're going to turn me over to Saul. So what does David ultimately do? David and his 600 men escape the city to elude Saul's pursuit and to protect the people of Caleb. What's interesting here is that it's David and 600 men now, isn't it? It was 400 men, now it's 600 men. It's slowly growing. So this is kind of the big picture of the story of these 13 verses. But now I want us to think through um, some of the implications of that story because what we have going on in 1 Samuel ultimately is a comparison, a comparison between Saul and David. In fact, you might want to say this comparison is a comparison between Saul, who is the Satan figure, who ought not be ruling, but is, against David, who is the Christ figure, who ought to be ruling, but is not. Okay? So just think about that. Saul is ruling, but he shouldn't be. David isn't ruling, but he should be. All right? And here we have this comparison. And this, this overlap it takes about 20 chapters of 1 Samuel. So you find this, this comparison going on through all these different chapters. So what is this text teaching us about how they are so drastically different? Let's just think through this. Number one, while Saul is butchering God's priests in Nob, just let that settle in, while he's butchering God's priests in Nob, David is delivering God's people from the enemy of Caleb. There's a timing issue going on. Last chapter, we heard the story about you know, uh, Saul having Doeg the Edomite kill all the priests and they committed the whole city to the ban. In other words, they wiped out everyone as well as the livestock. While all that is going on, while Saul is destroying God's people, in particular his priests, and only one escapes, David is doing what? He's rescuing God's people who are in distress from their enemies. It's an interesting parallel, isn't it? Saul, in his anger and rebellion against God, is destroying the priests of the Lord. He is showing his utter contempt for God and his will. He is fully aware that God has chosen David to be king over Israel. Just note verse 17, if you would, for that but he's doing all he can to undermine God's plan and purposes. He is not willing to have his family line wiped out as Samuel said it would be. And so he's doing all he can to destroy David because David is the one who's standing in the way. Now David is concerned for God's people and is coming to their aid to deliver them from their enemies. Totally different. What David is doing is not for selfish purposes. He's not trying to make a name for himself. How does this story begin? He hears about it and he inquires of God, what do you want me to do? He's not just trying to go make a name for himself. And God's covenant people are in distress and David is functioning now like a shepherd of Israel. And so he's going to the aid of the people who are under distress. 
Now, it's a risky step to step out of what has been a temporary place of safety in the wilderness and to move then from that place of safety, that stronghold, to a no man's land, so to speak, where he and his men will be totally exposed. Now, my question to you is this. What is driving you? We know what was driving Saul. What was driving Saul? Everything was all about find David, kill David. That's what was driving him. And he was, he was being driven to satisfy his own desires. So is it your sinful lust that's driving you? Or is it your submissive heart, humbly willing to submit to God's difficult will? And God gives us some counsel on this. The book of James addresses the selfish lust, James 4, 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that, that your passions are at war with you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. I mean, that word murder in there just kind of like strikes me. This is not some kind of a small thing. It's saying, well, you know, you, you jumped to the front of the line because you wanted that piece of chicken first. Your desires can, you know, unchecked and, and free to do as they want will result in even being willing to murder people so that your desires can be satisfied. That's a place you can get to. That's where Saul is. And there's also counsel for having a submissive heart before God. Here's a couple of verses, Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And the emphasis there is not so much your desires being satisfied. The emphasis there is you delight yourself in the Lord, and he changes your desires so that your desires are in conformity to his desires. And then there's Proverbs Chapter 3 in verses 5 and 6, we know it very, very well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. There's that humbly accepting and trusting that God knows what is right. Okay. So this, this first area here just is, is a comparison to say, listen, when you're not walking with God, this is the place you find yourself. But David, who is... In, in distress, in trial, in difficulty, is still seeking to honor God, still seeking to care for the people of God. That leads us into the second point. While Saul is listening to the counsel of Doeg the Edomite, David is seeking the counsel of God. Again, these stories are running somewhat parallel. And what's happening with Saul when he's at Nob with the priests, he's not listening to the silence of the Benjamites who are there who will not take their swords and hack down the priests. He's listening to Doeg the Edomite spin his tail, which then implicates these priests and ultimately results in their slaughter. But David is seeking the counsel of God. So Saul is not concerned with truth or facts, but only his own delusional conspiracy fears. David is concerned about the people of Calah, and is inquiring of God what he should do. He inquires first when he hears the news of Caleb's um, predicament, and God tells David, go and attack the Philistines. Then he inquires, inquires again when his men are saying, ah, this doesn't sound like a good idea, and they're, they're afraid. 
And again, it says, and God will give the Philistines into their hand. Now friends, don't you just love the patience of God with his servants? Did God not say to David, go, take care of the Philistines? But now the men are struggling. So David goes again. You wonder how he kind of approached God. He says, God, <laughs> I know you said go, but can you just kind of like give another word to help me out and to help my brothers out? And you know what God does? God accommodates that. And, and friends, we're not unlike that, are we? We know what God says, but oftentimes we are unsure, we're uncertain, we're, we're doubting, we're questioning because it seems maybe radical or it seems too difficult or it just seems like, ah, this, is, this may not be exactly what God wants me to do. And so we go back to him again or we go back to him a, a number of times and he, he condescends to that because he cares about us and, and the, the whole desire there is for us actually to truly know God's will. So we're, we're talking about David inquiring as opposed to Saul, who is listening to the counsel of Doeg, the Edomite. Which leads us then into the third one. And this is really probably the focal point of this whole section. While Saul presumes to know God's will, David is eager to discern God's will. Now what do I mean by that? Saul's presumption to know God's will, just think about this. The one who had been rejected by God, the one who had lost the ministry of Samuel, the one who had been seeking to kill uh, off David, knowing that he was the Lord's anointed, the one who had ordered the slaughter of the 85 priests and, uh, uh, of the Lord at Nob, as well as the entire town and his livestock, the same one, that Saul, now presumes to be able to discern and know the will of God. Look at verse 7. And Saul said, God has given him, that's David, into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Now doesn't that strike you as kind of presumptuous? That here's the guy who is rebellious, who is fighting against God, that sees David now in the city in a predicament himself but God has given him into my hand. In other words, this is God's will. This is God at work, Saul's thinking. This is fantastic. I just want to stop and pause and just hopefully we'll remember that we can claim God and his will even when we're not thinking biblically, even when we are tainted by sin in our minds. And here's Saul, still using the language and the terminology of, this is God at work. When he has been fighting against God this whole time. So isn't that how those opposed to God speak? God has given him into my hand. God has given me this opportunity because of X, Y, and Z circumstance. We know that God is on our side. But how can you come to a certain conclusion about God's will without talking to God or listening to God and what he says? How can you claim to know God or know what God is doing unless you can be certain about what he 
wants. And friends, one of, the, one of the issues that we have in American Christianity today is that there's a very superficial understanding of the Bible. There are bits and pieces of the Word of God that are you know, quoted or put on refrigerators or bumper stickers, and they become the, the, the fragments of our discerning of the will of God, rather than actually understanding the outlay of Scripture and how God is speaking to us through His Word. And so we, we come into a certain circumstance and we're like, oh, this must be God's will. You guys ever been shopping before? You know, you're, you're not even thinking about maybe, you know, getting whatever that thing is. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a car. And you're driving, you say, let's just pull into the, you know, oh, look, they're having a sale. Let's go find out what they're having a sale on. Well, you weren't even thinking about buying a car. But you get sucked in. It's like, oh, there's a sale. It must be God's will for us to do something. Look at all these things they're offering. Don't be fooled. But that's what happens, right? We get, we get duped into thinking that the circumstances legitimize and prove that this is God's will. So many in our, in our culture claim that what they're doing is right in God's eyes. Many people claim to do things in the name of God. It's the kind of thing you hear on the Oprah Winfrey show, and you Oprah fans out there, where you mention God as the reason for why you're doing X, Y, and Z that may be contrary to scripture. And everyone in the audience claps in affirmation of your strength in the face of tradition. In other words, in the face of biblical Christianity. And that's what happens when a man like Bruce Jenner can say, I am a woman, God made me the soul of a female. See, he's claiming this is God's will. This is God's purpose. And anyone who would disagree is hateful, homophobic, unloving. Still, all too often, man in rebellion against God feels comfortable claiming a God sense, put that in quotes, to their choices. In other words, if bringing up God in whatever form or whoever a God might be is a means for me to do and get what I really want that I most certainly will appeal to him, her, it, so that I can have those things, so that I can do those things. So God is not unpopular as long as it's my God as opposed to the revealed God. But Titus 1.6 is very, very clear that there'll be false teachers who profess to know God, but deny him, how? By their works. So you can, you can say you know God, you can, you can attribute things to God, but it will be evident whether you are actually worshiping that God, how? By your works. Now just think of the twisted thinking that's going on with Saul. Hey, isn't this great? The Lord's anointed is in the city of Cala. I can kill him. God has given me this wonderful opportunity to kill his anointed. Just, you see how distorted that is. You don't kill the Lord's anointed. You humble yourself before the Lord's anointed. You stand beside the Lord's anointed. So friends, this is twisted thinking. But 
Without pointing fingers at them, let's think about ourselves because we're also guilty of this kind of thinking. Are we too quick to attribute circumstantial events as evidence of God's will? A lot of times we discern God's will by those circumstantial events. I mentioned, I mentioned this, there's a sale going on. Well, you know what? Maybe you shouldn't buy that thing. Maybe you actually should buy some shoes for your kids. Oh, but there's a sale. God gave me a coupon. Woohoo! I've got to use this coupon now. It's from Macy's. But maybe there's somewhere else that you need to be using that money that is really what God wants you to do. But you got a coupon. Okay? So we look at the circumstances. When we're considering what God's will is in our lives, are we guilty of looking only at the circumstances or what other people say rather than turning to God and his word? We can use the name of God and appeal to the word of God and be deluded in our thinking because our hearts are wandering from God. And so friends, it's not just enough to say, I'm a Christian, therefore I'm going to think clearly and biblically. We must be willing to say before we discern God's will that we have done a heart check and we, we're thoroughly comfortable and convinced that our relationship with God is such that our ability to discern his will is at the best place that it can be. Now we're all gonna be sinful and that doesn't mean you're gonna have, you know, you might have you know, 10 minutes of sinlessness and you know, maybe I can somehow capture that 10 minutes and discern God's will. You're gonna have to deal with those areas of sinful struggles that you have, but, but you gotta be honest about where you're sinful. We can discern God's will, but we gotta be very, very careful how we do it. And simply looking at circumstances will betray us more often than not. Now let's think through David's dependency to discern God's will. He prays to God and God speaks. He listens to God. He seeks assurances from God. He believes God. He obeys God. See, there's this, there's this different kind of attitude that's going on here. See, David is a leader who is ruled by God. So he asks God the right questions. He listens to God's counsel. He is obedient to do it. Are you a child of God that is ruled by God? Are you the kind of follower of Christ that is saying, I only want to do his will. That's my desire. That's my heart. You may fail, and you will, but your Weather vane, so to speak, is pointing in that direction. That's what I want to do. And, and as I'm looking at life, as I'm thinking through issues that come before me, I'm saying, God, I want to do your will. Give me wisdom. Or do you have other driving desires that kind of push him aside? Now, since David is a foreshadowing of Jesus, we can confidently say that this is actually how Jesus behaved while he was on the earth. When enduring times of crisis with his disciples or in the garden, Jesus appeals to the Father. He listens and he submits. And it's a beautiful picture because it reminds us that he is aware of the kind of struggles that we face. He's not so aloof that he does not 
understand the, the, the nuances of the, 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 the kind of feelings and emotions that we go through. Now it's also worth noting this fourth point from this passage. That though David was under personal threat from the enemy, he was still responsible to do the work of God. And that is to be the king and to save his people. His unusual circumstances didn't change that responsibility. His circumstances may have made it difficult, um, but his responsibility did not change. And friends, that's helpful for us to ponder, isn't it? Because life is gonna be, through, gonna be full of all sorts of different trials and difficulties, but just think about a, a couple, a husband and wife coming together. The difficult circumstances doesn't mean you abandon your God-given responsibilities and roles to be husband and wife. Yes, those kids act up, yes. They're noisy, yes. They're not being obedient, yes. You need to discipline them. All those things are true, but you've gotta fight as husband and wife not to allow that distress to cause conflict with both of you. And you gotta fight to come together as husband and wife. You don't say, well, the circumstances now, that legitimizes me getting angry at my husband and blaming him and all this kind of stuff. The same is true uh, with, uh, you know, as, as parents dealing with those kids then. You may be going through a crisis at work or with your finances or in your own spiritual walk, but you're still responsible to raise your kids in the, the fear and, and admonition of the Lord, the discipline and instruction of the Lord, doing all you can in the midst of all that not to provoke them. So you're still responsible with the God-given role that he has given you as a parent. And for for children, for teens, your parents may be overbearing, they may be overprotective, they may be over everything, but it may be due to their sin, but it also may be due to the fact that they love you very deeply. And God has given you a responsibility to honor your parents, to respect your parents, to love your parents, to be obedient to your parents. See, difficult circumstances does not mean I shirk my responsibilities or I have a free pass. And David, even though he is in distress, is still willing to be the shepherd of Israel that God has called him to be. And that's why he's driven by the crisis that he hears by the, the city of Calah, saying, we need help. We're being overrun. And he's willing to risk himself to go out and to do that. Now, whatever our calling may be from God, be sure that Satan will do all he can to fight you and pull you away from being faithful to that responsibility. But we must, we must remember that although the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, Jesus is the lion of Judah, and there's no comparison. Satan is like Jesus is. Now see, here's where we can say the hand of God's guidance helps us. He guides us through his word. He guides us as we interact with him in the midst of those trials. And he certainly helps us. It moves us now into the second resource that we have, the hand of God's encouragement 
to uphold us. The hand of God's encouragement to uphold us. Let's read verse 14 and 15. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. Now, did you get the picture of what the narrator is painting here? Saul sought David every day. Now, you might, you know, you're tempted to kind of breeze over this and think, okay, that's every day for like three days. Now, this is kind of like an every day, every day, every day, every day. And every day, what is David doing? He's eluding him. He's getting away. Now we're told here, we're given this wonderful picture, God did not give him into his hand. But David was constantly aware of Saul's persistent pursuit, and the text reveals that he was somewhat worn down in the fight and a little fearful. And it's no wonder that David wrote in Psalm 6, verse 3, my soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord... How long, how long is this gonna go on? Sometimes we get really discouraged because the battle takes such a long time. Can you relate to David? It's the same struggle, it's the same difficulty. And it may be hard to imagine that God's anointed is struggling because we think, well, hasn't God promised to take care of him and to put him on the throne of Israel? And the answer, of course, Yes, God had, but that doesn't mean that the journey to the throne was going to be without difficulty, without fear, and without discouragement. Following God's will doesn't mean that life will be easy. And following God's will does not mean that life will be easier. That's really important. Because we think, if, uh, if I pray to God, and I humble myself before him that somehow that means my circumstances are going to be easier. It's not always so. It doesn't guarantee it. Sometimes it is. Often it is. But it doesn't guarantee it. So we've got to be careful. You may be doing all the right things, but doing the right thing before God actually may be more difficult. So God sends David some encouragement to uphold him in the fight. And I'm calling this kind of a covenant meeting gathering because it's Jonathan. It's, it's his buddy. It's his friend, Jonathan. We begin with covenant presence. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. Now, isn't it, doesn't it strike you funny that, that Saul is pursuing David all over the place? And like in the story, it's like Jonathan's like, boom, here I am. I found you. And the reason that is the case is because God's at work. God would not let Saul come and harm David. We don't let Jonathan in because Jonathan is a vehicle of encouragement for David. Jonathan comes and finds David in order to strengthen David's hand in God. And that expression is, is packed with meaning and implication. Jonathan took the initiative to seek his friend David out. He was willing to risk leaving the side of his father and entering into the arena with danger 
where his friend was. A friend who was willing and eager to sacrifice his comforts. It's who Jonathan is. And, And a friend who's not willing and eager to sacrifice his or her comforts to help is not worthy to be called a friend at all. Not only that, Jonathan was sensitive to the need of his friend. I mean, he was trying to come and find out what's going on. And David, how are you doing? In order to do that, Jonathan had to go face to face to talk with him. So this speaks, friends, of the the importance of covenant fellowship during times of conflict. This speaks to us being the church. This speaks to... Brothers and sisters in Christ looking for one another, seeking one another out, making sure we are aware of what's going on in their lives because God may be able to work through us where we can strengthen their hand in God. We can bring them encouragement to keep plugging away in their difficult circumstances. We need the body of Christ in times of crisis and conflict and distress. And friends, it's a huge difference when the body of Christ seeks out one another to find out what the real needs are. I've gone through some difficult times in my life when I've been in pastoral ministry, some of it relating to ministry, some of it relating to family. And it is encouraging when a note comes in the mail that says, we know this is a difficult time, but we want you to know that we're praying for you. That's the body of Christ reaching out, strengthening in that context the hand of Rod and Elia in the fight. Or maybe you're visiting a friend in the hospital. And I know some, it's like some people don't want anyone to come visit in the hospital. Some people want to set up a big party in their room at the hospital. You don't always know exactly what it is. But I would say more often than not, even for those that don't like you to come to the hospital, the fact that you came up speaks volumes, okay? And it communicates care. Now, I, just a little, little caution here, okay? And I, I'm saying this as a church. One of the things that we've really tried to establish in our church family is this, is that simply the pastor coming is not the answer. The body of Christ is sitting right out here. So that when you go visit someone in the hospital, Gateway has visited their family. See, we need one another. We need the body of Christ. In that context, that's how it plays out. Or maybe you're just gonna meet a friend for lunch and the purpose of meeting that friend for lunch is to strengthen their hand in God. To find out what they're struggling with, to talk about what's going on at work or maybe in their family situation and what's their walk with God like and and you can come alongside them and help them to pursue Christ, to keep plugging away. Or maybe you stop by their place of employment if that's appropriate with a word of encouragement. Proverbs 17, 17 says this. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Friend and a brother. Are you going to be a friend even in that time of adversity? Here comes Jonathan. In the midst of it all, out in the stronghold, in the wilderness, finds David, strengthens his hand. So, okay, We can be friends who strengthen one another's hands in God, but how do we do that? What does it look like? 
We move from covenant presence, which is being there, secondly to covenant promises. How we strengthen the hands of those that we want to encourage is we take them to the word of God. We take them to remind them what God promises in his word. Just notice what's happening here with Jonathan. Jonathan is coming to David and he's saying, listen, let me remind you of what God has promised. Verse 17, and he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Just think about what he's saying here. His father is the king right now. But this is what God has promised. And then he says, Saul, my father, also knows this. That's a huge, huge statement. But he's encouraging David by saying, listen, God has already promised these things to be true. And sometimes... We know things to be true, but we need the body of Christ to remind us that those things are true, to encourage us with those promises that they are real and that we can hold on to them. So he's saying, it might all seem difficult right now, David. You may be hiding out in the wilderness, but we must believe God's promises that they are true. We, we must Rest on God's promises and allow them to comfort us. And God's promises are a comfort for his people. When it comes to trial and temptations, one of the places I go is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation or trial has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation or the, 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 the trial will also provide a way of escape. We're like, yeah, I love that too. Until we understand that the way of escape is not you know, a helicopter coming and picking you up. It's simply saying, this is the path I want you to walk. And then he says, that you may be able to endure it. So God answers us when we're going through a trial by saying, listen, I'm faithful, I have a plan, it's gonna require some work for you, but I'm with you, and I'm there to help you. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 145, if you would, because there's a few promises that are given in this psalm that are really, really helpful. Psalm 145. When you're discouraged, we can be reminded of Psalm 145, verse 14. Notice what it says. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. This is a promise. This is what he does to his children that find themselves falling or bowed down. What about when we are having difficulty making ends meet? Look at verse 15 and 16. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. Your open hand, you satisfied the desires of every living thing. Listen, we, we, we know that God is going to take care of his children. He's going to provide the food you need. He's going to provide the, the necessities that, 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 you know, that you have to have in order to exist. Now, our level of expectation is considerably different than what God is promising here. But he promises that he will meet our needs. Look at verse 8. When we worry that God doesn't love us, 
we can hear from verse eight, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now when we're, when we're grieving, when we're struggling because we've lost a loved one, we can be counseled by the words that we find in Psalm 30 and verse five, where it says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Now that doesn't mean get over it, but what it means is you will get through it, okay? So we gotta be careful, even as we're trying to encourage people by giving promises that we don't distort the promises to say what they're not saying. There's a time to weep, all right? And there's also a time then to experience the joy that comes even after that grief. The promises of God for his children are not, not empty platitudes, but anchored truths that guide, strengthen, and sustain us on our earthly journey. And we can be masters at strengthening our hands in God by reminding one another of God's promises to us. Don't you love God's promises? We need God's promises. They are anchors for us in our growth. So from these two covenant, covenant presence, covenant promises, we're gonna go now to covenant assurances because there's something that happens here with Jonathan and David that I think is really interesting. Now you might look at it a little differently, but Jonathan has said to David, do not fear, the hand of my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel and I'll be next to you. My father knows this to be true and verse 18, and the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And then David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. They made a covenant. So how many covenants are these guys gonna make with each other? Is that all they do is they get together? I mean, it's, it's almost like, you know, getting together is an excuse for another covenant. And faithful friends remind one another of their covenant together. And friends, that, that, that's happened this morning. As you guys have entered into the gathering of the body of Christ, you've either embraced one another, you've, you've shaken each other's hands, and in doing so, you are reminding one another of that covenant of friendship, that covenant of relationship, that covenant that comes by being the body of Christ together. That's what happens when a husband and a wife hug and kiss to say to one another, I love you before parting ways. It's a way of expressing that covenant. It's a way of reminding one another and communicating the, the reality and the centrality of that covenant to one another. That's why families gather together to pray and hug one another when one of their young people either goes off to college or maybe into the military or to start a job in another city or a state or a country. There's, there's something about this coming together that is affirming this covenant relationship that we have. We don't just say, well, I mean, if, if I say to my wife, you know what, I, I, I told you I loved you at my wedding. Hopefully that's not true, I don't know, but. No, I need to repeat it. You say it over, you affirm it. That's what's going on here. They made another covenant. They affirmed their relationship with one another. I remember when I was ministering in Russia for the first time, we were in the town called Kirojapetsk, and um, 
it was like 14 hours by train from Moscow. Um, and I was teaching on the general epistles. It was a two-week class, and most of the students were missionaries, pastors, um, young men being trained for ministry. So a class of about 30, 35 students. And we poured through these general epistles. These are not easy. Book of Hebrews is not easy to teach in the context of, um, or in that kind of context. And we were walking through these sections of scripture. Just in the midst of that, we just developing relationship. And at the end of those two weeks, it was time to say goodbye. And for two weeks, I had poured myself into them. They had actually reached out to, to us and been very, very affectionate and kind and given us a gift. This is, I went with another person by the name of Bill Spicer, and we both got these, these watches from them. The students just gathered money, and with, with what little they had, bought us these watches saying thank you. And then it was time for us to leave, and the students come out, and there's the car that we're going to be leaving in, and, and we just all began to weep. And, and, and there's things that you start to think, and, and in my mind I'm thinking to myself, I may never ever see these individuals ever again. And yet, how quickly because of Christ we had been knit together. And I remember getting into the car and Bill and I looking at each other through blurred eyes. We didn't have you know, window wipers that we could use on our eyes at that point in time, but just weeping for like 15, 20 minutes. Why? Because there had been this wonderful knitting together. And friends, that is, that's the kind of thing that happens when people love one another, they care for one another, and they're covenanted together. Now, we didn't have some kind of a formal covenant thing, but there was a, a covenanting together because we're part of the body of Christ. And there was a sense in which I was commissioning them at the end of the teaching to go out and to serve the Lord, and these guys were willing to go wherever God had them to go. It was a powerful time. But hear this, it wasn't simply emotions that was going on there but it was a deep friendship that had been established even in the short time of two weeks. Now sadly, this would be the last time Jonathan and David would see each other. What a way to go. Covenanting to together in the midst of difficult circumstances. And God, just like he brought Jonathan into David's life, can bring you into the lives of other people to strengthen their hand in God. Directing them to the truth of God. Giving them what's really important. Helping them make progress in their walk with God. Let's move on to the third one here. It's the hand of God and his providence that delivers us. So we've seen how the hand of God's guidance helps us. We need his word. We've seen how the hand of God encourages um, God's encouragement upholds us. We need to preach the word to one another and to ourselves. But now we turn in this last section to the hand of God's providence that delivers us. And notice, notice that this account be begins a very broad way. Here's David. He's in the wilderness of Horish. The Ziphites um, are, are, are there. They see him and they go talk to Saul. So it, it starts here in a broad sense, but as the, the story continues, the Ziphites come to Saul and they say basically, hey, we know where David is and we can take you to him if you like. 
And so Saul says, hey, listen, go make sure you know where he is, and I'll come along, and I'll follow after you. And so the whole story is like, is like the story that's beginning now, and it's this pursuit of David, and it's, it's kind of building up to this climax. And here they are, going neck and neck on one side of the mountain and on the other side of the mountain. Here's the story unfolding. Now understand, Saul has the best soldiers, Saul now has the Ziphites, the the best trackers of the area. This is where they live. And everything in this story is saying, they're going to get David. They're going to get David. They're going to, I mean, it says David is doing all he can to hurry and get away from Saul. So this is a high pressure, a highly intense uh, scenario that's going on here. And Saul is closing in to capture David and his men. And then out of nowhere, Just when you think David will be taken captive and his men slaughtered by Saul's soldiers, a messenger comes racing on a motorcycle with the news that the Philistines were making a raid against Israel again. Okay, there's no motorcycle, but you get the point. Now friends, this is is the kind of thing that God does. David here is experiencing suffering, trial, difficulty, anticipating certain death, and yet God comes to his rescue out of nowhere. Look at verse 28. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. There's really three points that I want to pull out of this to help us. First of all is this, there, 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 are, there are statements that are screaming from us in this passage that are similar, and it's the word stronghold. Did you catch here the stronghold of Horish, the stronghold that are, that's in the wilderness of Maon, and then ultimately the stronghold of Engedi? All this is going on, and, and, and the, the narrator is trying to get this point across. That although David is being pursued by Saul who desires to murder him, David is always sheltered under the arms of God. Saul cannot touch David. Because God won't let him. Let me say it a little differently. Despite the difficult circumstances, God was protecting his servant. Now let's read Psalm 54 one more time. We began with it. I want to bring things closer now as we think about the context that we're looking at, Psalm 54. Let's just read through this quickly. Verse 1, oh God, save me by your name. You can hear in the background there, Saul and his army are just around the corner. And vindicate me by your might, O God, hear my prayer, give ear to my wor- the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life, they do not set before themselves, or God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper, the Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from my trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. There's something about God promising us that he, when he says he protects us or that he cares for us, that that is true. 
regardless of what the circumstances might say. That moves us to then the next point, and that's this. Providence. Here's the point. We must remember that God's providence doesn't guarantee that there won't be trials. We believe that God is sovereign, right? And because he is sovereign, he works out his providential care. But his providence doesn't guarantee that trials will disappear. As you can see, David is having to do, endure many of them, and he will continue to do so. And we will also endure many of them. But God's providence does guarantee that our timing or our lives are totally safe in the hands of God. Well, what if, what if I'm in the difficult circumstance and my life is in danger and they kill me and I die? Then that was God's timing for your life. It doesn't mean that God was somehow, oh, I had no idea this was going on. And friends, there's something comforting about that. Now, we, we can't just be ridiculous with that, but there's something comforting to know that if I'm still breathing, I'm still on this earth because that's what God has chosen. He is providentially at work in my life. And it's worth noting also that the Philistines, the dreadful enemies of Israel, are but pawns in the hands of God to bring about his will. At the beginning of the story, they're coming and they're raiding the city of Calah. At the end of the story, they're raiding Israel and they're used by God to bring Saul away from pursuing David. The mighty Philistines. No, the mighty God. We may be tempted to say, well, these providences are only for the main characters of the Bible like Joseph and David and Moses and Jesus. But friends, don't we have stories to tell? Stories that reveal the strange ways that God has watched over us, where you, your, your hindsight is saying, can you believe that this person was here and there and we were on this trip and we happened to show up in the same place and wow, how come you're here and I needed something? God has this incredible way of accomplishing his purposes and those stories reveal his providence. Or God's impeccable timing in a, a season of struggle or a moment of unsolicited kindness that brought us out of a season of discouragement. These are all stories of, of God's providence at work because see, his providence doesn't always work the same way. And certainly God is faithful to his children in incredible and unexplainable ways. The poet and, and turned hymn writer William Cooper captures this in his well-known song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It's a hymn I love. It's not a hymn that's typically sung anymore. The actual tune to the hymn is kind of drab, but the actual words are powerful. And just listen as I read them. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. 
The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be its flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. I just encourage you, just get on Google and type, type God moves in mysterious ways and just meditate on this song, this, this song because it, it pulls out the beauty of God's wonder of providence and sovereignty and caring for us during difficult times. And then finally here on this last point, there is this rock of escape. It's a, it's a rock of division. It's a moment where David and his men can celebrate God's providence in their life. It's a celebration. It's a remembrance. This is where God entered in to the story, entered in and took away Saul and his armies in, in a, this miraculous way. And we want to celebrate that and we want to remember him for it. Now, as I bring this all to, to a close, I want to pull out the fact, I want to really emphasize Jonathan and kind of allow him to kind of be the one who paints the picture for us here because Jonathan was just this great friend to David and, and David certainly benefited from him. But I want you to notice that Jesus is our greater friend. He is the one, let's put it this way, he is the one who sticks closer than a brother. He is the one who ultimately is willing to sacrifice his life for us and, and pay for our sins. He is the one who pays attention to our needs. He's the one who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's the one who offers grace to help in time of need. An old pastor from many years ago Andrew Bonar wrote in his journal of a certain wood where he would go to be strengthened through fellowship and prayer. He named it his wood of Ziph, right from this passage. And he recorded that God has often strengthened my hands, my divine Jonathan meeting me there. Now you probably all know the name of Jonathan Edwards. Apparently at his death, in his dying breath, he says, or he cried out for Jesus of Nazareth, my true and never failing friend. But I want you to think about the Apostle Paul. Because in 2 Timothy 4, verses 16 and 17, just, just listen as I read this. This is the end of his life. This is when he's on trial. He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. See, he is our greater friend. Psalm 27, verses one through five, just listen. The Lord is my light, my salvation, David says, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me, to eat up my flesh and my adversaries and foes. Um, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Lord, help us today.
to consider how you are at work in our lives during times of crisis and trial, how you guide us through your word, how you encourage us by reminding us of the promises that are in your word. And Lord, how you are providentially at work in our lives, looking out for us, caring for us, at work in ways that we cannot comprehend. And yet, Lord, we trust that you are at work and that those things are true. And Lord, I know that there are people right now who are going through difficult times. And I ask, Lord, that this passage would be a means of strength for them. And Lord, that they can turn back to these texts, whether it's the Psalms or whether it's 1 Samuel, and find strength, Lord, for what they're facing. We ask this now in your name. Amen.